Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, happy Friday, and uh, we are back today. Tim Wildman is not with me, and I know that that is such a bummer because we had such a good time over the last couple of days with Sherathon, and, uh, you know, he's he's a funny guy. He did not mind me calling him a boomer at all, you know, so, um, so we thank... All of you who uh, generously pledged to uh, to donate and to fund the work that we do here at AFA and AFR. And I am so grateful as well um, for your donations and for listening to this program because I'm so grateful to be part of the AFR family. And as I've expressed over the last couple of days, um, you know, this has really been an answer to prayer for me. And I know that it was for uh, the AFR family as well to have, you know, this time slot open up and they want um, you know, someone who would come in to to talk about politics from a biblical worldview perspective, and it was just it was such perfect timing because I was praying as well um, to get out of just doing politics and just representing politicians and elected officials and campaigns and clients and and to really get back to um, the the substance of why we do all of that, which is of course. Uh, because of the Bible and because of truth and the biblical worldview. And I love talking about the things of God and analyzing uh, everything that we do in society and in the church and in our families and everything we do in our vocation, um, the entire life from a biblical worldview perspective. And uh, and so it's it's incredibly important, the work that we do here, and it's um, it, it's a responsibility that I love and I um, have come to uh, just really enjoy every morning spending this hour with all of you. Uh, that that choose to spend this hour with me to talk about what's going on in our country and our nation to confront some uh, really challenging issues of our time and to look at them from not only what newsmakers uh, may think about them and you know I may not always agree with everything guests have to say on the show but I want to bring them on um, to to have their perspectives aired so that we can then talk about it and I love uh, when you all write in and you tell me your perspectives have guest ideas and you can always uh, write Write in Jenna at AFR.net, Jenna at AFR.net. That comes to me and my team here. And um, and you can also still give, by the way. Um, you know, our share is never really over, so you can go to AFR.net as well and also call 877-616-2396. That's 877-616-2396. If you missed share or you didn't get around to it and you still want to uh, make that pledge, um, you know, it's it's so important that we continue to have the perspectives of our wider swath of very diverse citizens here in the United States, um, but then to ultimately come together and say, well, we start with a foundation of truth. 
and truth being the person of God and knowing him so well that then we can divide truth from error. We can rightly divide scripture. We can rightly divide uh, policy perspectives, the law, and we can ultimately champion what we should in society, which is continuing the characteristics of truth. Because how do we even define justice in this society? without understanding that justice flows from truth. Justice and actual justice, not injustice, which is, of course, the contrast, justice is part of the character and nature of God. So we can't know what justice is. We can maybe get there because we have, uh, to, to an extent, because we have general revelation. We have the truth of God written on our hearts. We all instinctively, as human beings made in his image, understand there is a difference between right and wrong, good and evil. But we can't get to the full, robust understanding of true, accurate, meaningful justice if we don't know who the person of truth is. And and so doctrine in that sense and sound theology is not the same thing as uh, just memorizing a rote list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs. Um, it's the same thing what, you know, people when, when they say, you know, you're an attorney, isn't that kind of boring? You just sit around and read law books all day and I'm thinking, you're missing the point. It's it is alive in philosophy and in understanding of uh, what the law looks like because true and accurate righteous law is an attribute of God because he himself is the divine lawgiver. And so why do we study sound theology in churches and hopefully um, daily in the word so that we don't just get to know what sound doctrine is, but we get to know the attributes and the person and the characteristics of God himself. Truth is a person, not just a philosophy or a theory or, you know, like Star Wars, the force is good. And then there's, you know, the, uh, you know, the evil, the dark side of the force. You know, it's not this mystic kind of tangential thing that's vague that you can't really wrap your head around. Truth is a person. So how do we get to know him? Well, we get to know him the same way that we get to know our family members or we get to know friends by spending time with them, by getting to know their characteristics. And unlike uh, me or any other human being, the attributes of God and his character and nature are not fickle. They never change. We can know him and be confident in him because the Bible tells us that truth, the person of God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change. He will always be faithful. And we can depend on that. We can rely on that. We have security in that. And the law should be predictable in that sense. When I'm advising a client on the law, I have to know what the law is, how it works and functions, and I need to make a good and solid prediction and say either, yeah, you know, that that violates the law or it doesn't based on an understanding of the predictability of the law and what is permitted and what is prohibited in society. Well, I can't make a prediction if law is totally arbitrary and it just bends and flexes to the whim of whatever uh, the, the court and this activist judge uh, and what their politics might feel like that day, right? We'd go in and say, well, you know, it kind of depends on the judge's mood, you know? And thankfully, that is not the God that we 
serve and the God that we can know. Truth is knowable because the person of God is knowable. And so as we then know the person of truth, we know sound doctrine, we know theology, the study of the person of God, we understand his attributes and characteristics, justice, mercy, grace, all of these things that outflow from truth, then we start building our society in the civil society, the way we engage with each other. We build our church based on the understanding that Christ is the head of the church and how uh, that whole community functions. And we also build our families based on a knowledge and an exercise of what that looks like predicated and founded in truth. And, and we all have to then recognize that if we live in an unjust or false or non-truthful society, then that will frustrate us. That is when we feel and we know and we realize harm, the, the injury of an unjust or immoral society. Or, you know, if you were growing up and, and you ever had um, a rule in your house that you thought was unfair and you go and you appeal it to your parents who are the rule makers. Well, you know, should parents just be petty tyrants of their house? Well, no, that's the first opportunity that you have to show your children what does justice, fairness, and, uh, and all of these principles and these attributes of God look like in a family setting. This is why um, you know, marriage should be a reflection of God in the church and how uh, God gave himself up and, uh, and sacrificed himself because he loved all of us so much. I mean, the, there are so many ways and parallels that we live out the truth of the gospel of Christ when we are rightly dividing truth from error. So we have to learn truth first, and, and I, I loved that my parents uh, would start— our day, every day uh, growing up being homeschooled, we would read the Bible. And we I got to know the person of God all growing up. And so that has continued through my adult life and through um, crises of faith and saying, okay, how, how do I trust? What do I really believe about God? Do I know the character and nature of God well enough to apply that to this situation? And faith is not just a fairy tale belief or a feeling of hope that may be empty. Faith is defined in scripture as the patient expectation that God will fulfill his promises. He says he will be faithful. We loved him because he first loved us. He will be faithful. And so we can rely on that. And that's why in Hebrews um, chapter 11 and 12, give us the scope of the great cloud of witnesses, the faithful that God said, these are the people who were faithful. What did that mean? They, in their day, when they were confronted with a life situation that required believing in God to fulfill his promises, to be who he says and who his he has revealed himself to be, and then they acted upon those promises. They exercised their faith. That's why it's one of our constitutionally protected rights in this country to exercise our faith. What does that mean? Believe in the promises of God and act accordingly. And to show and display our faith to say, I know who God is. I know what his promises are. I'm going to act accordingly. And I have faith. Just like, you know, when you when you do anything in your life and you make these decisions— 
And, you know, you get on an airplane saying, well, I have faith in the pilot that he knows how to take off and land (laughs) and fly the plane. And it's an act of faith, right? Because you are trusting the system. And, and in a, in a, that's a very, very, very minor example of how we do place our life in faith in a wide variety of circumstances and how much more should we be placing our faith daily and living according to the promises of God and who he has revealed himself to be that is faith it is it is a patient expectation that God fulfills his promises and that he is faithful and we act accordingly so it is belief plus action and this is why the apostle paul says faith without works is dead why why because we can't just have a mere belief and say yeah sure you know i believe it but I'm not going to act on it. Would you trust someone if they say, oh, sure, you know, I, I believe you that you are going to lead me to safety out of, you know, the woods that we're lost in, but I'm going to sit back and not move. Well, no, you would say, well, then you don't really trust me to be your guide and to lead you in this situation. And in the same way, if we say that we have faith and don't act, then we are revealing ourselves to not truly be trusting the Lord for who he is and who he revealed himself to be. So we have to daily be in the word. We have to uh, take advantage of knowing who the person of God is by the revealed specific revelation of scripture and also the general revelation, the empirical world around us that allows us to get to know our creator. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. We get to know our creator through the experience of self-evident truth. We can discover the laws of nature and of nature's God. And isn't it amazing that we live in a world that was ordained according to God's sovereign purposes um, that allows us to discover truth, self-evident truth, to discover the laws of nature and how to interact with that and who our creator is by looking at how he has ordained and established the world to which we are presented. Reality. Reality is accepting and understanding our creator. And so we have to first know the truth, but then we have to apply it in our daily lives. And that's what we do each and every morning here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning and across all the shows on American Family Radio Network, we take truth and then apply it to law, politics, culture, church issues, all of these things that we face in our daily lives. Why do we believe in certain philosophies or principles or policies or politicians or actions? Because they either reflect truth or we reject them as false. So make sure that you are continuing to apply scripture daily in life, but you got to know what to apply first. So we'll be right back here with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, 
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning, and it is great to be with you on this Friday. And we are, of course, after Sherathon, and so uh, normally Vivek Ramaswamy uh, joins us every Wednesday, but he is uh, kindly joining us from a great bus tour in New Hampshire on this Friday morning. So, uh, Vivek, how are things looking, and uh, what is your plan for um, this whole bus tour? And uh, you know, how are things looking in New Hampshire? Things in New Hampshire are great. Uh, we really love the free state. It's a granite state, and uh, people here, I think, are really hungry for ideas. And one of the things I've been doing is we're traveling a 10-county bus tour, taking a break in the middle of it to fly to the NRA meeting, where I'll be addressing the NRA audience, and then coming back to New Hampshire to pick up where we left off. But one of the things I love about this state is that people are very hungry for substance, hungry mm-hmm. for the actual policy ideas that are going to drive solutions beyond just the standard talking points. And so I think this is one of the states where we've already been spending a lot of time. And frankly, Jenna, we're going to be spending a lot more. So really enjoying it here. That's great. And you know, speaking of actual policy solutions, I think it's fantastic that you are going to speak at uh, the NRA convention and, um, you know, totally just uh, saying, you know, forget it. We don't care about all of the uh, leftists trying to say that, um, you know, gun control is the solution to, uh, you know, some of these mass shootings that have occurred across the country when clearly it's the worldview and not valuing life that is the problem in society and taking God out of society. Uh, and so what what do you plan to address there? And can you speak to uh, your pushback to the Democrats and Biden's call for gun control? Yeah, so I'm going to be addressing that audience in person. I'm taking a break from the New Hampshire tour to go there and then coming back here to New Hampshire. I wanted to be there in person to deliver, I think, an important message, which is that the Second Amendment was made for times like these, Jenna. The pieces I'm going to put on that stage today is different than what they've probably heard in the past. It's like the equivalent of mutually assured destruction, of deterrence that we heard during the Cold War between the U.S. and the USSR. That's what the Founding Fathers envisioned in the relationship between a government that was prone to overreach versus its citizens when they were able to be armed and defend themselves. That's actually what keeps the government at bay. And so the Second Amendment is not about hunting. It's not about sports shooting. It is about actually putting the teeth into every other freedom we enjoy that's enshrined in our Bill of Rights. And one of the things I'll be doing later today, people don't know this, is I'm going to be reading some lines from the Constitution of Iran, which guarantees a lot of the same rights that the Bill of Rights does, or the Constitution in China, which professes to offer the same rights as the U.S. Constitution. But the reality is those countries don't actually offer those rights to those citizens because the one thing their Constitution is missing is the Second Amendment. And so, you know, as you know, Jenna, I'm big on not just spouting the standard talking points. I care about the what and the why. Why is it important? I think that's what's going to be the heart of my speech today is let's get to the roots of why the Second Amendment existed. And I think once we understand that, we see that it was made for times like these that we live in. And it is no coincidence that the erosion and pushback on Second Amendment rights and freedoms comes at the same time that we see the erosion of other freedoms, like free speech, threatening political speech through the back door, like the use of police power to arrest your political opponents. This isn't a coincidence that it comes at the same time as this real full frontal assault on Second Amendment rights as well. And I think that goes to the heart of why I became a gun owner, and that's going to be something very first personal 
that I talk about to that audience as well. That is so fantastic. And, you know, you mentioned um, these other countries' constitutions that profess to uh, have rights that are protected for their citizens. And, you know, when I was teaching uh, constitutional law to to pre-law students and preparing them to go to law school, um, it was amazing to me the textbooks that uh, I could choose from also, we're talking about like, oh, look at how our Constitution has so so many fewer rights that are specifically enumerated. And the thing that that they completely missed was that our Constitution gives limited powers to the government and requires government to preserve and protect all our rights. So thankfully, we do have a Second Amendment that specifically enumerates that as the, the right to keep and bear arms as one of our rights. But a lot of people miss Vivek, that even if we didn't have a Second Amendment specifically in our Constitution, that would still be a protected right because our constitution and our country was founded on the premise that rights come from god not government they're not just privileges like in china or iran that can be obfuscated and abridged and taken away at whim that's right and you know what it's interesting i I love that you and i can actually have an open conversation about god which has become a four-letter word in our society but it's in the bottom of each of our coins it's in our motto for a reason we say in god we trust and one of the things i'll be telling that nra audience today is when we say in god we trust Embedded in that, the flip side of that coin, if you will, is that in government we distrust. It is who we are as a people. Since 1776, we were skeptical of government. That is what is enshrined in the Second Amendment. It is deterrence. It is keeping that government at bay. It is what gives peace to all the other rights that we have. And I think that that's something worth remembering. It's what makes us us as Americans, is that we're the pioneers, we're the explorers, we're the people whose ancestors, whether it was one generation like mine or 10 generations like my neighbors, that came over to this country, leaving comforts somewhere else in another part of the world to come here and be the pioneers and be the explorers. And we weren't going to let any government, even the one that we, the people created, get in the way of our exploration and our daring adventure through the modern American life as we've created it. That is what the Second Amendment, the spirit of the Second Amendment, is all about. And you know, I think it's important that we just get beyond the standard talk tracks of what you're supposed to say to the NRA or whatever. I actually was raised in an anti-gun household. So this was something mm-hmm. that I came to not because I came to it by rote or by habit, but through the conviction of understanding, going through law school, going through my civic education in high school, understanding what the principles were. And that's what gives me my appreciation of the Second Amendment, not because I was raised in a family that went hunting or sport shooting. That's not what actually the Second Amendment's about. It's about the freedoms that define what it means to be American. And that's why it's so important to me. So, so well said. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, of course, is a, a GOP presidential candidate. When you say that we should have a distrust of government like our founders did and a skepticism, I mean, this is why they separated and limited powers. And uh, in the Federalist Papers, uh, you know, as as James Madison talks about in Federalist 41, saying, you know, unless men are angels, then we won't have governors that aren't dis exposed to become tyrants and to take over and to abuse power. And um, and so for someone who is running for the highest office in America, it's such a great thing that you understand that. And as someone who wants to be an office holder is still skeptical of the very government office that you're running for. And I think that that is the model of what American government and, and a truly a moral and upright government should be. Yes. 
That's right. And it also should be the backbone, Jenna, of America first, grounded in principles. I'll tell you, and part of the reason I'm running for president is America first does not belong to one man. It does not belong to Donald Trump. It does not belong to me. It belongs to you. It belongs to all of us as the people. And America first was born, actually, you know when it was born? It was born in 1776. Because you know what? To put America first, we need to, again, rediscover what America is. And I think those principles are part of what we've forgotten. We're going through the motions. We're reciting the slogans. But we have to remember why we're reciting those slogans in the first place. That is what motivates me to be in this race. That is what motivates me to hopefully succeed in leading this country through a national revival. Let's remember the why. And once we do that, we can go even further with the agenda, with that America First agenda, than anyone has to date. And I'm leading, I'm aiming to lead our country through that national revival in many ways as late Reagan did in 1980, through that last national identity crisis we were in in the late 70s. That's the kind of moment we're in right now. And I'm optimistic that if we tap into those first principles, then you want to get to the gun control debate. Then you want to get to the abortion debate, the other debates that people think are intractable. You know what? I think once we go back to the first principles, if we have a leader that's able to explain this to the country, not based on vengeance or grievance or even partisanship, but based on first principles of what it means to be American, we will go further with our conservative agenda, but we will also unite the country doing it. And I know that sounds unthinkably hopeful right now, but I actually think it's possible. That is what I'm running in this race to deliver. And the next stop is that debate stage that you and I have talked about in August. And if you know anybody who's able to help me get the prominent spot on that debate stage, we don't want to just be on it. I think we're comfortable with that now. We want to be at the center of that debate stage with really driving these ideas and this vision to the forefront of the GOP primary. Go to Vivek2024.com, V-I-V-E-K2024.com. And you know what? We love $1 donations. We love $5 donations. The small dollar donations are what's going to lift this up and also mm-hmm. put me at the center of that debate stage. So yeah. I appreciate you guys doing that. And and you mentioned uh, the debate in August that was just announced this week uh, that the first RNC debate will be in Milwaukee in August. And it's interesting because they're partnering with YAF, um, the Young Americans Foundation. And I think this is perfect for you, actually, um, as a candidate being the first millennial candidate because it shows that the RNC understands and the GOP movement understands that millennials are the largest voting bloc now in America and that we have to focus on uh, civics and the next generation. And so is that going to be part of your messaging? And I know, you know, there's a lot of time between now and August, but um, but that was very fascinating to me to see that the overall uh, RNC focus is on young Americans. I was actually encouraged by that. That was good news, because what do we actually care about all of us? We care about passing on a country to the next generation. My kids' generation, I have two sons, I think that when I had my first son three years ago, that's what actually changed my worldview. That is definitely what played a role in me stepping outside of my role in, as an entrepreneur in the innovative sectors of corporate America to say, you know what, we have to address this cultural cancer in our country. It is for the next generation that we care to do it. And that's what motivates me. I think that's what motivates so many of us in our movement. And I think that it was a good move by the Republican Party. I've been very critical. I am usually critical of the Republican Party, but here... <laughs> I think it's a good move and a good signal to put that focus on reviving American identity in the next generation of Americans. That's why I'm in this race, and I'm glad that the Republican Party is finally, you know, better late than never, screwing its head on to understand that's really what we all care to do. And you, have, you better believe, Jenna, I will be on that stage, inspiring, hopefully aiming to inspire people even outside the Republican Party who are in my generation, your generation, and younger 
to understand what it means to be American. And I think that, you know, that'll drive them to the conservative movement. That's fine. But the conservative label matters less to me than the pro-American label. And if more young Americans wear that label, I think we're going to be we're going to have our best days yet ahead of us, but it's going to take some leadership to get there. That's why I'm in this. Yeah, and and I truly am grateful that you are in this race. And uh, in just the last like minute or so that I have with you, Vivek, um, you know, a lot of people are suggesting that you know you're just in this race to maybe help boost uh, Donald Trump, or you know, because you want a cabinet position, or you know, some other things. But um, you know, from what I see and what I've known about you, even before, uh, you know, well before you uh, ran for president, is that you're in this because you're actually passionate about that national identity and reclaiming the spirit of seven. 1976 and actually getting things done in the policy perspective. I'm in this race to revive the spirit of Ronald Reagan in leading this country out of our national identity crisis. I'm not going to do that from a cabinet position. I'm running to do that from the White House. My family and I, we've made real sacrifices. It is not, it is not the easiest decision to have made in the stage that we're in in life. I've put eight figures of my own money already, and that's just the beginning into this campaign. You better believe that's not to run for some some, uh, you know, I would say assistant position, only because it's not about my ego. I think there are plenty of ways to have an impact in this country outside of government. That's what I've been doing through writing the books, through starting the businesses that are starting, like Strive, competing with BlackRock. So I think there's many ways to have an impact. But I believe that the best way I can deliver impact now is to do what Reagan did in this country and revive our shared national identity. Frankly, go even further with the America First agenda, far further than Trump did. That is why I'm in this race. I see an opportunity to do it and to unite the country. And you know, that starts, You'll people will have to see a chance to see that across the country, starting on that debate stage in August. And I appreciate everybody here putting not only me there, but the ideas that I represent at the forefront of our party. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Vivek. I know you need to uh, to jump off, but really appreciate your time weekly. And we have so many listeners across the country that have uh, written in that really um, love and support uh, your message, what you're doing, why you're in this race. So um, you can go to Vivek2024.com. And uh, of course, you know, this is a message that um, really does, I think, resonate with so many of us who are pro-American, who are pro-Christian, who are pro-conservative, all of these things that we are for a lot of times we say, um, you know, we're against uh, certain things and, um, and and we tend to focus on the things that, that we're against that the left is trying to encroach upon. But we need to be saying also what we are for. And that is um, a lot of what I really like about um, Vivek's messaging, especially because as he's been talking um, as a as the first millennial candidate who's saying, you know, I am a young person comparatively with, you know, the other candidates and um, the history of the last uh, a couple of presidents um, to say, you know, I'm not waiting until the torch of liberty is passed, but uh, going and claiming that. And I think it is interesting what he said as well about um, the RNC. And I'm also encouraged that they are emphasizing and focusing on the Young Americans Foundation and trying to encourage young people because, as millennials have become the largest voting bloc uh, currently in the country, and as we're looking at uh, Gen Z and you know college students and people who are coming up in a culture that is so apart from reality, with you know the trans agenda, the the identity politics, all of these things, we have to come back and say, wait a minute. What is the truth here? And politics is all about truth in society and advocating for laws and policy and government um, that is predicated on what our founders recognized as 
truth, which is God himself and that our rights come from God, our creator, not our government. And it's the sole purpose of government to preserve and protect those rights. So we'll be looking forward to that debate in August. It's going to be really fascinating. And we will be right back on this Friday with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning. truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back on this beautiful Friday. And I am so excited to actually be in the studio right now with one of my new BFFs. And you all have to follow <laughs> him on uh, social media. And I'm sure that you're already listening to him. Abraham Hamilton III, the host of Hamilton's Corner and also an, a brilliant um, and amazing attorney. And uh, we've connected on you know quite, quite a lot of um, not only theology issues, but legal issues. And um, and so welcome now to, to my show. This thank is so fun. You. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be on with you. Yes. Yes. Well, um, well, I wanted to start this conversation and there are so many things that, that we'll have to talk about more on radio. <laughs> but um, but the big news, of course, that is in uh, the political, you know, conservative mindset right now is this whole weaponization of government, which, of mm-hmm. course, is not just Donald Trump and the Manhattan indictment. But this is against parents who are. Uh, being told that they're on the domestic terrorism watch list. Mm-hmm. There are attorneys like me that are getting bar complaints. There mm-hmm. are doctors who uh, have their licenses taken away for, um, you know, COVID therapeutics. I mean, this is a whole host of issues. Yeah. And the the problem that I see, though, is that a lot of the response has been, we have to fight back and we have mm-hmm. to fight fire with fire. And so we need to go and just do to them what they're doing to us. <laughs> I don't see that being helpful. No, not 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 in the least bit. And you have to st- have the story this just this week where you have FBI, the FBI infiltrating uh, a Catholic church <laughs> uh, because uh, uh, traditionalist Catholics who actually have the audacity to encourage their 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 parishioners to to see what their children are being taught in schools, and the FBI is literally infiltrating as a you know a, an espionage infiltration because they consider them domestic terrorists. Like this is this is Crazy. absurd. But I think one of the most helpful things for Christians to understand first and then to respond to is to have a longer view. When when one of the most critical necessities for the for the body of Christ in our day and time is is apologetics understanding, biblical worldview training. But I would add to that a robust introduction and education in church history. Mm. When you understand that the freedoms that we have enjoyed as Christians in America, this is an aberration from in terms of church history. This has been a, an extreme minority ex- experience around the world and throughout history. The church has consistently been put uh, against into the margins by government. So the response that we should have today should be very similar to the way the body of Christ has responded throughout all of history. Whatever is going on, we should seek to glorify the Lord in all things. Fighting fire with fire is not an appropriate response if fire causes and requires us to be sinful. In our response, in our responding. Second Timothy chapter three, the apostle Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. A lot of people in our country, believers in our country, really, if we were honest, we want a persecution less faith instead of the type of faith that persists in the face of persecution, in spite of persecution. Persecution actually has been one of the things that has created champions in our faith, like Augustine. You know, Augustine witnessed 
believers, regular, everyday people whose faith in Christ was so alive that they didn't even fear death. And that caused him to think, wait a minute, what am I doing with my life? Like getting my life together. And it led to him ultimately converted to the faith. And so am I saying lay down and just be a doormat? No, not in the least bit. I'm not saying that. We utilize our understanding of our legal rights, like the Apostle Paul appealed to Caesar that ad- actually contributed to the gospel getting into Caesar's household. You study the, the his, Paul's epistle to the Philippians. He said, the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ greet you, including those among Caesar's household. That doesn't happen unless Paul appeals to Caesar. But having said that, if Paul's efforts were, were cer- shortly or certainly or exclusively to win a legal case, when he's before Agrippa, he never would have mentioned anything about Rome. Right. And Agrippa was said, wait a minute, you, you, you fool, you idiot, Steve, you idiot. If you had not <laughs> appealed to Rome, I could let you go right now. But yeah. because the Apostle Paul had a broader eternal kingdom of God agenda that he wasn't confined to his utilization of his rights as a Roman citizen, as a Roman citizen, but he utilized them for God's ultimate transcendent purposes. And I believe we should learn from that and seek how we can employ that within our American context. Absolutely. And that's exactly what our founders did when they wrote the Declaration of Independence and they appealed to the highest source of authority in the law, which is God himself as yeah. the divine lawgiver. And as I love their term in the Declaration, the supreme judge of the universe for the rectitude of their intentions or the moral uprightness. And so as Christians, uh, you know, we have we have become so complacent in our society because we've had it so good. Yeah. We have experienced religious freedom like none other in world history, hardly, yeah. um, and in a way that has been passed from generation to generation. And so now that we are experiencing some of this hardship and persecution, and I absolutely will call it that, um, you know, our, we, we do have to make sure that how we respond is biblical, but we fight with righteousness and yeah. be, you know the bible talks about being angry but do not sin and we can be angry we can have a righteous indignation and we can utilize the process but we cannot ever just say um, like what I'm seeing some conservatives do is, well you know the, the left doesn't care about the constitution and the rule mm. of law so why should we right and and the answer to that of course yeah, is because the constitution is our founding, founding document and beyond that we have a mooring that grounds us even beyond the Constitution. People ask me all ask me all the time, hey, why do you engage civically? I said, well, my purpose in civic engagement is to keep the door open for the gospel. Yes. Political engagement is not an end in and of itself. It is a means to an additional broader end. And so I would challenge and even encourage people to ask themselves, well, why am I doing what am I doing? It's very easy to be, cons- to be so consumed in the what that we lose the why. Yes. The why has to be that the gospel is the preeminent function and prerogative that we're seeking to employ. George Washington said in his, in his farewell address famously, I know you know what he said. He said, religion and morality are indispensable supports of this, this exercise in self-governance, this, free, this, this constitutional republic with democratic features. Then he even went on to say, in vain would that man claim the virtue of patriotism who would work to subvert either of them. One of the things that I see happening is that there are Christians in our day who are complaining about something that really we are we have contributed to to a degree. What I mean by that is when you have a civic government that has the rule of the people, you know, the government derives its just powers from the consent of the governed, our investment should be in the hearts and minds of the populace. When you have a constitutional republic with democratic features where we get to choose our own leaders and by elected representatives choose our own laws, well, what do you think the types of laws and leaders will be selected if we have an increasingly wicked populace? 
right, an increasingly wicked government and, exactly. and, and wicked laws that don't define truth from error and moral uprightness. And we end up in a totally either permissive society that permits all evil, that ultimately, if we have that society that is so evil, it will result in tyranny. And we have seen that over and over again. But I want to underscore one thing that you just said, Abe Hamilton, which is that politics is not the end goal in and of itself. And what I see a lot in um, so-called conservative circles Uh, is that if we win on a Republican ticket, for example, okay, we've won, we have achieved the goal, and that's it. And so we try to win campaigns by any means to achieve that goal. But really, for the Christian, having truth in society, Mm -hmm. having the body politic reflect that we can do what we're doing right now, which is Mm -hmm. exercising our first freedoms of speech, religion, press, and association— We can continue to do that to further and advance the gospel of Christ. And if we lose sight of that, then I think that is why the church has had this divide of saying, well, you know, you do what you want in politics, that's too dirty. We will continue to just be the pure church, and they don't get it. (laughs) So we have the politicians on one side who don't get that it's because of the church we're doing this. And then you have the church that largely is saying, we'll buy into the separation of states. We don't don't need politics. Mm -hmm. And that becomes then, you know, two sides of the same coin that are both missing the whole point. And and both of those sides of the coin, coin, Missing, missing the whole point leads to our nation degenerating to where we are now. We haven't gotten to where we are in our nation overnight. We have walked our way into it. I would say we have discipled our way into it by a combination of affirmative things and neglecting things. When, the, when we as the body of Christ are not on the front lines proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, we are contributing to a perpetual degeneration of the body politic, which will in, in, in turn result in those people choosing leaders and policies after their own heart. And so you see this happening, and in, 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 I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, but the cobblestone roadway to the entirety of the sexual deviancy of sociopolitical agenda was paved by a nation embracing heterosexual violations of God's standards for sexuality. Yes. People don't want to talk about that. Right. But for far too long, many in the body of Christ have been mum on fornication and adultery, won't say anything about it. You know, people struggling and in mass with pornography addictions and things like that in the church. And then all of a sudden, when this uh, lasciviousness manifests itself in a homosexual context, then it becomes a political discourse, of course, because it's a pursuit of rights, but it is the externalization of things that have been going on internally for far too long without having proper, robust addressed by the church. Yes, and we so well said, and if we don't keep those contours around the bright line moral standards, then we are starting to moral gerrymand. Yeah. As, as I have oh, termed it. Well said. And we are trying to, for too long, carve out the things we're fine as as Christians with no-fault divorce and with adultery, with all of those other things, right? Mm. But then when it comes to homosexuality or it comes to transgenderism, we want to draw uh, the, the line of viability there. And we are rightly then termed hypocrites. Mm. And of course, um, you know, the Bible does have process to deal with sin. Mm. And of course, not, you know, not every marriage 
marriage does survive because one person commits adultery or for other reasons. Yeah. And we have biblical process, and this is why people need to be part of the church. And you know, we can we can talk about those things doctrinally, but we need to. And I think you're absolutely right that when the church failed and Christians failed to stand up for the biblical definition of marriage, and we saw that that women in the church largely embraced feminism. I mean, there are so many women right now in the SBC. I was just talking to a good friend on my podcast earlier this week that um, the SBC is contemplating whether or not women can be pastors. I mean, yeah. this is the same. This is the same beyond reality as contemplating whether men can be women. Yeah. We shouldn't even have this conversation, but yet here we are. So, what's the road back? Yeah, the only the road back and it, it's very similar to what we experience when we drive our cars. Thank God we have reverse in our vehicles. <laughs> yes. The road back is repentance. The only way it's the hard tortured road of repentance. And in order for repentance to take root, we have to acknowledge where we are. You know, you, you mentioned about the church uh, not uh, not adhering to the biblical conviction concerning sexuality and marriage, not merely in a policy sense. I'm talking about in a functional, practical, yes. lived sense, you know, and by having such a broad swath. Uh, I remember being in an in a, in a event at a Christian conference and I had some Christians, unfortunately, mocked me for suggesting that my wife and I are endeavoring to raise our children to be chaste until they're married. Oh, horror of horrors. <laughs> How dare you in I mean, this progressive society? Literally was pretty close to what they said. Like, yeah. can you really believe that's possible? <laughs> wow. And I said, it's not only possible, it's required. Yes. In scripture. You know, the Lord establishes the standards. Our inability to live up to them don't give us the right to change the standards. Right. The standards do not change. You know, I said, not only do I believe it's possible, uh, my children are celebrating this as, as an objective to pursue, as an outflow of their commitment to the Lord themselves. This is something that they want, mm-hmm. not merely because daddy and mommy are teaching them this way, but this is something that they're t- taking a hold to as they're growing in their faith. And that was like, I had like, Spock ears or something coming up at a Christian conference. Yeah, but you, and this is, and I, I believe it was G.K. Chesterton that said this: that uh, Christianity has not been weighed and found wanting; it has been tried and found difficult. Yes, well, and very well said. That that is where we are at. That we going back to original sin, we have tried to be God, and we have tried to say for whatever reason, whether it's feelings, it's difficulty, it's um, you know, it's economic choice, it's I mean, whatever the reason and the motivation. We have had a problem in sin of not yielding to the proper authority and the mm-hmm. proper authority structure. And if you look at that in the church context, in the family context, in the civil society context, it's all about respecting what has God ordained from his authority first and foremost, and we submit legitimately to his legitimate authority, and then the people that he has set up to help put those guardrails in our lives. Amen. Very well said. And and to, to just underscore what you said earlier, the way back is repentance. And the way back is simple, but simplicity is not synonymous with being easy to accomplish. Yes. But it nevertheless is simple. And the, and the first component of that is acknowledging this is where we are. How do we get where we are? We've strayed. We've strayed by and large from God's standards. And the only way back to enjoy the fruit of what God provides is to, to participate in the means, the mechanism that God has afforded for us. And so repentance is the order of the day. And so as we acknowledge, every man, as Jeremiah uh, recorded, every man, every woman is made aware of the plague of our own hearts. As we repent individually, we become exponents of the very thing we have imported to ourselves, which is that same grace that's applied as we repent. Yes, and and that's so well said that it has to start with us because if we are championing things in culture and asking our country to be saved, are we 
living rightly, and then encouraging others to. And this is where, you know, being an ambassador for Christ, that term took on such a new meaning for me after I was an ambassador for other very prominent people. You know, when I realized that every moment, no matter what I do, that is a reflection on the sitting president of the United States, I thought, well, wait a second. Have (laughs) I had that same weight feel that every moment is a reflection of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for Him, and everything we say and do should be respecting His divine authority. That is the way back. So, Abraham Hamilton, thank you so much for joining me today. This segment goes by so quickly, um, but hopefully do that. And listen uh, to your, when is your show on? 5 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on American Family Radio. Hamilton Corner. All right, well, I will see you next week here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Make it a great weekend.